So just uh, first, we wanted to uh, thank the Wellness Club for hosting us here. We just wanted to make sure that we speak about longevity with an audience that are interested in health and wellness so that they actually figure out what's going on with the science and where we're going with it. So welcome everyone to this longevity panel discussion. As I mentioned earlier, we are very honored to have assembled some of the biggest scientists in the field who are currently working on reversing aging. Um, this discussion is intended to eliminate how they are approaching longevity and to know if, they are, if we are any closer to achieving it. Uh, we are going to do some quick entrance on the moderators, uh, house rules, and then introduce our panelists. Myself, my name is Laura Minkini and I'm the founder of Mikey Guy. Um, I'm building a direct-to-consumer longevity platform dedicated to the education and vetted curation and management tools for people to get on board in a longevity lifestyle. I spent most of my career in trend forecasting and actually something outside of science, which is fashion and design. But um, in looking into the aging space, I realized that longevity is the only way to change that paradigm. And I hope that more people get interested in it. So that's our mission. Anyone interested in a future of prevention and regeneration, please subscribe or contact me. And I'm very happy here to be with two experts in the field uh, who I consider friends now, Avi Roy and Nathan Chang, and I'm gonna let them introduce themselves. Thank you, Laura, and hello everyone. My name is Avi, I'm a biomedical scientist and entrepreneur in Oxford. I advise and fund startups in health and longevity space based in uh, Europe, North America, and India. And I also work with governments to develop and refine policies so that we can get a infrastructure for longevity mm -hmm. built. And besides myself and the ever ebullient Laura, we are also joined by the erudite Nathan, uh, who will be our co-moderator. So Nathan, could you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, great. Um, thanks, Avi. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Nathan Chang. Um, I'm the founder of the Longevity Market Cap newsletter. It's a once a week roundup of uh, developments in the longevity biotech industry. Um, I'm also the founder of Longevity List, which is a website where you can find jobs, uh, companies, and investors in the longevity biotech industry. So if you're looking to join like a longevity biotech startup, definitely check that out. And um, Last but not least, I'm currently working with a bunch of great people on an awesome secret project to accelerate progress in longevity. Um, it's still in stealth, but if you are interested in either like building, funding, or joining uh, a longevity biotech startup, then definitely send me a DM on Twitter. Okay, so we have all our guests here. Welcome, Greg and David. Uh, I guess I'll hand it over to... Um, Laura in just a second to do intros, but just a quick FYI, again, uh, this is being recorded. So if anybody comes up to the stage for question and answer period, uh, that means you can send to us using your voice and profile photo in the recording. Uh, thanks. So um, Laura, uh, I'll hand it over to you for uh, intros. Thanks, Nathan. So my job now is going to be to read everybody's amazing. Um, I'm going to start, we're going to get, we're going to go left to right, top to bottom, so everybody knows who all our speakers are. And first one is Alex, Alexandra Stolzing, who is the head of research at Sense Research Foundation and professor at Lombard University. Her research focuses around the amelioration of the hallmarks of aging. Next is 
David Gobble, who is the co-founder and CEO of Metusele Foundation. His focus is establishing and supporting research and breakthrough technologies in regenerative medicine. Next up is Jean Ibert. He's an associate professor of the Department of Genetics at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and author of Replacing Aging. He's devising methods of cell replacement for the adult neocortex where its cells are lost due to damage or age-related de uh, degeneration. Zhao, please tell me how to say your last name. I'm always butchering it, so I want to make sure that I say it correctly. Oh, please try it. <laughs> Jao Pedro, Jao Pedro de Magalajas, no Magalajes, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I wish my Portuguese was better. Please uh, correct me. You, you can just call me Pedro. That's fine. Oh, that's, that's what everybody does. Okay, Pedro. <laughs> thank you. Um, is a microbiologist and professor at the University of Liverpool. The goal of his work is to understand the genetic, cellular, and molecular mechanisms of aging across all organisms. Liz Parrish is the founder and CEO of BioViva Sciences. Her focus is the advancement of gene therapy for the purpose of extending healthy lifespan in humans. Next is Aubrey the Great, the chief scientist officer and co-founder of the Sense Research Foundation. He is the biomedical gerontologist, author of Ending Aging, and one of the longest proponents to study the field of longevity. Greg Fay is the Vice President and Chief Scientist Officer of 21st Century Medicine, and is a cryobiologist, biogerontologist, and businessman based in California. His research focuses on organ cryopreservation by verification. And last but not least, Dr. David Sinclair is a professor of genetic and co-director co of the Paul F. Glenn Center for the Biology of Aging at Harvard Medical, Harvard Medical School. He's the author of Lifespan, and his research focuses on understanding and slowing the pace of aging through a variety of approaches. And this is our amazing uh, panel of scientists working on rever reversing aging. I'm gonna hand this over to Abby now. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for doing the hard work of introducing everybody. Um, although everybody here probably is very well known by, by all the people in the audience and, and worldwide. So I'm going to begin with a rapid fire uh, question. So uh, please keep your answers as succinct as possible. I'm sure many people have asked you this question before, but how do you, with your research and your work and the, and the companies that you advise, um, how do you plan to reverse aging? And so that everybody doesn't jump in at once, maybe we can go ladies first and with first names. Alexandra, do you want to go first? How do you plan to reverse aging? Uh, thank you for the question. Yes, how do I uh, want to do it? Um, as I work uh, for the Sense Foundation, our paradigm has been to reverse damage that has accumulated with aging. And we have a couple of these uh, kind of like damages in our body and we have projects uh, that try to reverse them. And apart from the science bit, um, being out and about and informing the public and talking about it, I think is the other thing that would really help us reversing aging. And I'll leave it at this point. Okay, I think that's, I'm, I'm probably next. I'm the only other lady here um, outside of Laura. So um, BioViva is committed to reversing aging through gene therapy. Um, 
a lot of people probably know that if you don't uh, check it out it's pretty cool and we are we have developed a new vector delivery system that can deliver multiple genes decent sized genes and so we hope to deliver the first many many artificial chromosome to work um, as a uh, you know, protector, maybe something like a vaccine against aging. But we're really looking to upregulate regeneration more than the degeneration at the cellular level. So we go after the hallmarks of aging. And uh, by doing that, we hope to accomplish our task of not only slowing or stopping aging, but reversing it. Fantastic. Aubrey? Uh, right, yeah. Um, well, so Alex more or less said it. I am uh, delighted to have Alex on our team at Sense Research Foundation. Uh, we are interested in repairing the various types of damage of aging, which uh, have been, of course, described and classified in various ways by various authors over the past 20 years. Um, but that doesn't really change the um, priorities in terms of what we need to develop. We are at the foundation working on the most challenging aspects of that because those are the aspects that other people, uh, whether for, for financial reasons or other reasons, have been neglecting. And our business model is essentially to work on damage repair of a particular type for as long as it takes to get to the point where it becomes investable, at which point we spin projects out as startup companies. And so, of course, we work very closely with the private sector. And the eventual goal is to be able to apply many of these therapies to the same people at the same time, so as to keep their um, all, all aspects of their accumulation of damage within the um, threshold level that the body is able to tolerate and thus to prevent and preempt all of the health problems of late life. Thank you, Aubrey. Uh, either of the Davids? Both? I will yield to David Sinclair first. Uh, thanks, David. Uh, so we're pretty excited in my lab about um, reversing aging through epigenetic means. So this is what we call partial reprogramming. Um, we published a paper in December about the use of three of the Yamanaka factors to restore eyesight in old mice and mice that have had uh, optic nerve damage. And we're continuing to use that technology to tick off the various tissues and organs in, an, in animals to see which ones can be uh, rejuvenated uh, from old age deterioration. And uh, so we're looking at that. We're doing a number of screens to figure out how this actually works, how it's a, as a possible there's a backup copy of a youthful epigenome in mammals. Uh, and we're working towards clinical trials, which uh, will we'll head into primates by the end of this year, with the goal of uh, treating blindness initially, but ultimately having hopefully some small molecules and other easier treatments than gene therapy to reverse either individual tissue, aging, or whole body. Thank you, David. David G. So Methuselah Foundation is in the business of identifying holes and filling them. The first hole we filled in um, partnership with Aubrey when Aubrey was uh, 
my co-founder at Methuselah Foundation, the first hole was no scientist could actually pursue this project we're on without losing their career. And we had a Methuselah Mouse Prize and Aubrey's uh, presentations in the public, the book that turned that uh, situation around. And now it's an inevitability. We, uh, the next hole was uh, that it needed to be investable. And so we started Methuselah Fund and that started uh, what we hope and think has become something of a reference portfolio. In the portfolio are um, epigenetic reprogramming, as uh, David Sinclair mentioned, um, turn bio out of uh, Stanford, uh, uh, senescent cell ablation. We're partnered with uh, the uh, SENS Foundation in Oshin Bio and with, um, or um, Oncosenics, excuse me. So those are just a couple of examples. Um, the next hole was associated with our strategy of new parts for people. You can get parts for an old Corvair, 1961 Corvair, but if you need new parts for people, you can't do it. You got to get uh, plastic and titanium and ceramic. Well, I think that's ridiculous. So we uh, partnered with NASA uh, to create a uh, solution to the rate limit for scaling up 3D printed tissues to macro sized tissues. And that was just one uh, last week. It exists. The hole has been filled. Of course, there's lots of little holes around it that need filling, but that is a breakthrough of uh, Titanic proportions. And I don't mean the sinking Titanic either. So that's what we do. We find holes and we fill them. There's still plenty of holes to fill. Thank you, David. Uh, Greg? Greg, your mic, well, wow. Uh, I think Greg has just dropped, uh, dropped off. Uh, Jean, would you like to? Hi, yeah. <laughs> First, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I come from the perspective, um, echoing a bit what uh, Alexandra said about damage, um, but I come from the perspective that the complexity of macromolecular damage that occurs with age, and is really well documented, really mandates a tissue replacement as an essential component to beating aging. And so, as you've just heard from David G., you know, that's underway for lots of parts of the body, uh, a lot of people are interested in that. Uh, but what we're focused on is the neocortex, the part of the brain that we use for our highest cognitive functions. And we're taking sort of a ship of uh, a Theseus approach where we plan on progressively being able to replace uh, the whole neocortex um, over time, you know, piece by piece, piece of tissue by piece of tissue. And the proof of concept that this uh, should work uh, is already well established due to the nature of, of how the neocortex works. It's a very plastic substrate. Uh, the execution, however, is, is uh, far from um, you know b being achieved. Uh, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done there, uh, technical hurdles, and um, those are the things that we're working on. 
Thank you, Joao. Uh, Joao, our final participant for the answer. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, pleasure to, to be here. So I would say on one hand, reversing aging, uh, I would like to understand the mechanisms of aging. Why do we age? What are the molecular, cellular, genetic mechanisms of aging? What's the drivers of aging? So that's one of the things I've been uh, working on. Um, I don't think we understand well the process of aging. I mean, I've just uh, put out this, this preprint criticizing the hallmarks of aging as a, as, a, as a paradigm. So not that I think hallmarks of aging is a wonderful review, but I don't think it explains aging. I don't think it's the, the dogma of the field of aging that uh, sometimes people perceive it as. Uh, I'm not even sure damage causes aging. So I, I don't think we understand well the process of aging. And in order to intervene and to reverse it, I think we need a better mechanistic understanding of aging. So that's one of the things I've always been interested in and I'm still working on in my lab. Um, in addition to that, I also work with several companies, um, technology development in particular. So uh, in particular, uh, I'm also the CSO of Centaura, which is a Swiss-based company when developing new technologies, in particular for uh, artificial chromosomes and gene therapies. Um, the idea is that if we can, you know, even if we can figure out why we age, then we need to, to do it, to actually develop the therapies. And that's not straightforward. So, so we're also working on developing the technologies that hopefully one day would allow us to, to reverse aging. Um, and lastly, um, I, I, I mean, I've always done the outreach and I've, I've always been interested in spreading the word of the importance of research on aging. I don't think that's as necessary than when I was started, you know, more than 20 years ago, because now there's lots of websites and, and lots of uh, advocates, but that's something uh, I still do. Thank you, Joao. Uh, Nathan, next question. Okay, thanks, Avi, and thanks to all the panelists for your for your responses. Um, so, for our next question, uh, like to start off. Um, so, Siddhartha Mukherjee writes in his book uh, *The Emperor of All Maladies* that science begins with counting. So, if we want to reverse aging or or slow it. What are the most promising approaches to measuring biological aging and the effectiveness of the therapeutic interventions that uh, we're developing? Um, so this question is open to anybody on the panel. Uh, maybe we'll start with David Sinclair. Great. Uh, well, I'm talking to my car. Hopefully you can hear me okay. So we're, uh, I mean, the field has had a real breakthrough in the last uh, decade with uh, the discovery of the epigenetic clock. Uh, it was really the, the first truly accurate measure of biological age. There are more now. There are, uh, there's the glycan age, there's an immuno age, there's, there's the proteome that you can look at. Uh, but I, I'm still a big fan of the, the accuracy um, and the underlying biology of the DNA methylation, also known as the Horvath clock, that is a, a, a pretty good predictor of future health. Uh, both in animals and in people, um, and now cross-species. And the fact that you can use the same clock to look at aging in bats and sheep and dogs and humans is quite a remarkable thing that Steve Horvath has, has shown us. Um, so that's the best one, and, and I'll, you know, I'll do a bit of a re reveal here. Uh, my lab does work on lowering the cost of that test. Uh, we've made some breakthroughs, and we are looking to commercialize that um, 
in the near future to democratize that test so that people will be able to monitor their biological age, which I think is actually just as important, if not more important, than their actual age. May I take a stab? Yes, please. So <clears throat> I come from um, an additional viewpoint, uh, not clocks, but um, the fact that we have, as uh, mammals, an excruciatingly, excruciatingly sophisticated methodology of finding those who are young and uh, fertile. We look at body plan and the face. And so for me and our organization, we look for empirical and functional results, i.e. we know it when we see it. We are very much against the we're going to take 130 pills and hope for the best crowd. Our view is if you're already old, you know, let's say that 50 means you're on a decline, if you don't feel better because of an intervention, either prospectively or actually, then is it really doing anything? Now, scientifically, the numbers may be better, but I argue that perhaps we don't know what the numbers mean yet. For instance, in 1974, the United States went on a tirade to make sure that our cholesterol was down low and that the numbers were supremely important. And now we're finding out, oh, wait a minute, it was inflammation. So I follow what the Supreme Court Justice said when he said, I don't know how to define pornography, but I know it when I see it. So we focus on things like um, skin improvement, deep skin improvement, functional improvement, muscular improvement. The reason that we invested in Turn Bio out of Stanford was because their results uh, were functionally um, apparent. It was inarguable. They worked better, stronger, and uh, the bones healed faster. So we know it when we see it is our clock. I agree with the, the epigenetic clock. Uh, BioViva, we have a clock now that offers people five different results based on different uh, peer-reviewed, agreed-upon clocks. And I think that the epigenetic clocks are great. Um, but I do like the immune clocks. I like, I like all the things that both of the Davids talked about. Um, there is also, you know, cognitive function. And those tests are getting better. And I think they're going to be really important. You're going to see that come out in one of the papers that we're going to be releasing soon. And then um, as, as to David G, um, the, what's happening inside the body is as important as what's happening outside. So, you know, when you're looking at treating aging, you, you may have to start with an eye in the case of David S's case, or you may have to start with a kidney. Um, some of us would like to start with the whole body. And the, the truth is that in order to cure aging, you're going to have to be able to target every tissue. Now, in some cases, we might have better results with certain areas of the body or not. And the great thing about treating traditional disease is it gives us the ability to have end markers that we sort of know what we have to meet. Um, whilst the, the better biomarkers of aging are, are developed. Uh, but speaking to that inside and outside of the body, you know, the MRI images of, 
uh, an old and a young pe person are very evident. And actually, Abby, this speaks to one of the brilliant ideas that you had some, I don't know, five or 10 years ago, which was like creating an encyclopedia of uh, the, you know, the, the slices, the cross-sectional analysis of MRI images throughout a, a human body, because the brain, the liver, the organs, you know, they all change. And so, it's not just on the outside, it's all the way through. So some sort of um, cross-section. And, and with some of the gene therapies, we do that. We actually um, take imaging because we want to see all the way through if there are any changes. So I think that's going to be a, an important marker uh, coming up. Can I build on that, maybe? Um, the imaging idea, I think, is very good, um, especially for uh, certain parts of the body, like the brain. Um, you know, we do two photon imaging to look inside the brain, the live brain. And we see um, in model animals, and no reason to think it would be different in humans, that the, uh, you know, light penetration and diffraction uh, starts deteriorating uh, as soon as you reach adulthood. And, and then the longer you go, the worse it gets. It's sort of this uh, very measurable um, a phenomenon. And it's it's also interesting that it's very, um, it can be disconnected completely from cognition. So I'm not so sure cognition is a good measure. So there's a lot of things that will reverse uh, cognition to what is considered a younger performance stage. You know, caffeine, for instance, <laughs> for a lot of people uh, improves their cognition. And, but does that really reverse aging? And we look, if we look at this more, um, um, you know, less less performance based, uh, but more anatomical based uh, imaging method. Um, we see that you know, aging is not reversed, even though cognition or the performance is. So I think we have to be careful uh, about what we're measuring, um, because yes, maybe we're improving performance, and that's great, and we should do that. But we're not necessarily reversing uh, the aging process, however you define it. I would define it as the accumulation of damage, and that's pretty apparent in the brain because of this light diffraction that occurs progressively over time. Um, so um, we might be able to improve our, our quality of life to a certain extent, to a certain age, but, but if, if this accumulation of damage goes unimpeded, uh, we hit that wall at around 100, 120. Uh, and, and that's actually been uh, calculated for certain molecules that don't turn over much like elastin or don't turn over at all. Um, so, you know, the vasculature can't survive past 100, 120 years without being replaced. Uh, but, but that's, you know, generalizable for, for other aspects of tissue structure and, and tissue components. Um, so, you have to be a little weary, I think, of, of performance as a measure, measure of age reversal and, and try to be, um, you know, stick to more uh, biological, molecular, or anatomical um, measures. I'd like to jump in and make a quick comment. One of the problems of our field is funding. If you want to get vast funding, help people look and perform younger, and the funding will come in like a flood. I don't speak against what you said technically, though, Jim. Yeah, I, I, I think 
one of the um, important things to highlight here is that even though we have become very much better in the past decade at developing clocks operating of one sort or another, in other words, predictors of how soon you're going to start suffering from the health problems of late life that are based on large quantities of data that were previously technically inaccessible. Even though we've got enormous progress there, what we still are really at square one on is identifying clocks that can, in, that can be validated in the context of interventions. In other words, clocks that can reliably be assumed to give us good information, advanced information, regarding whether an intervention is working. Of course, it's very true that um, we, we want to be predicting that before there is any substantial functional decline, ideally before there's any substantial cosmetic decline, to go back to what Dave just said. But, um, you know, we might be getting there. But in the context of actually whether an intervention will um, will break the clock, will be uncoupled from the clock. In other words, whether the clock will actually reliably tell us um, whether the intervention is working. I think we're still very much at the at very early stage. Okay, thanks for that. Oh, okay. Uh, Greg, uh, welcome to the stage. We missed you a little earlier. Maybe uh, you can answer this question and and at the end, you can maybe just tell us a little bit about uh, your sort of um, perspective on how you are reversing aging. Sure. And I apologize. I had a little uh, technical difficulty uh, uh, ringing in before. Yeah. So just uh, to pick up on some of the things that have been said uh, at Intervene Immune, we are actually using interventions that can be applied right now to do things like epigenetic programming, but by changing the signals that the cells see in the body so that their instructions set for uh, how they should behave changes in a more youthful direction. And we've been trying to reverse uh, the aging of the immune system by regenerating the thymus. But in the process of doing that, we've also found that uh, epigenetic aging has been going in reverse in our uh, treated uh, volunteers based on all uh, four of the standard clocks, plus a plasma-based clock that we applied uh, retrospectively to our data set recently after our first clinical trial. So, so to, to uh, sort of marry that uh, information with what's been discussed, I think we have an example of situation in which you see both performance enhancements and epigenetic clock reversals just by changing the signaling paradigm that the, the body is being subjected to. Uh, and we, we have people uh, saying uh, that they feel great subjectively, but then objectively we see things like kidney improvement, um, uh, reduction of uh, prostate cancer risk, uh, improved lung function, and all kinds of other things that uh, can be objectively measured. So we, we have sort of both the performance slash subjective aspect uh, uh, looking good uh, and the objective uh, uh, epigenetic clock-based uh, measurements uh, looking good as well. Uh, and our, our goal is to do something about aging in the near term and not to have to wait for the development of much more sophisticated therapies in the future because we're all aging now and we, we need some answers sooner rather than later. 
Great, thank you, Greg. Um, is there anybody else that wants to chime in? Joe Pedro, Alexandra? Maybe just some very short comments. Uh, we need more clocks, uh, even that we have a couple of very good clocks already um, kind of in the market. I think we need more of them and we need them cheap, as mentioned before, and we need them so that everyone at home can have them as well. That would be really kind of like helping a lot with like clinical translation if people don't have to come in for like a very in intensive uh, or expensive measurement. So it would be really great. And having causative markers, so something that is actually involved as, as Dr. Pedro said, like in how we are aging, like knowing that your marker is actually involved in that process would be really nice. Um, so yeah, we need more of them. So yeah, I, I don't have much to add. I, I agree with uh, David Sinclair that you know the epigenetic clocks is is uh, the most reliable now, and it's also fascinating, you know, uh, how particularly now this this preprints from from Steve Orvath of how it works across mammals. I'm still trying to get my head around it. I think it's incredible. Um, so, uh, but I would agree with Aubrey. In fact, Aubrey once said that the the major outcome of aging is of course death. So that's that's what we need to predict. Uh, and although there are uh, epigenetic clocks, you know, I think there's Greenmage, for instance, um, I'm not sure we know enough to, to, to do a clinical trial based on it. So, so we still have uh, some way to go before we can, we can use this for, uh, for trials. I guess I just need to say that, you know, we did, uh, observe a reversal of grim age in the trim trial that we did and we are now launching something called trim x and we have preliminary evidence at least based on the plasma clock that we're seeing similar effects but uh, we do plan to emphasize the grim age clock as something that can be modified by a, uh, you know an available intervention uh, going forward so I, I do think that there's actually a lot of potential for using grim age clock uh, for monitoring the course of clinical trials uh, in the near term Okay, great. Thank you for all your answers. Uh, I'm going to hand it over now to Laura for the next question. Thanks, Nathan. So I love that David Sinclair mentioned about the democratization of um, some of these tools that people will be able to use for to uh, look at something like the biological age, which, as you mentioned, is more important than your chronological age because uh, that's your health, your actual health. I have a question for the panel because I know that um, longevity science, though it has been real, it's really advancing in the last 20 years, people have been talking about this for a long time. In 1969, gerontologist Alex Comfort suggested that life expectancy, not simply um, maximum lifespan, could be extended to 120 years within the next 20 years. Well, that didn't happen because he obviously is not with us anymore. Um, what will be different this time as we try to get people interested in longevity or promise them that this is imminent in some way or form? And this is a lighting round question. So if, uh, if, every, if the other panelists could give a succinct answer to why, uh, we, how we can get people to believe that uh, this is a possibility. I'll jump in first and say that the largest, most wealthy generation in history does not want to go quietly into that good night. 
and they are more and more going to be putting their money into this. So it's going to be raining in floods. Number two, look at the size of the audience of this uh, clubhouse and the quality of the presenters. There's no snake oil here. I'd like to, I th uh, thank you, David, that's awesome. Um, I'd like to add to that, that unlike um, the 1960s, the 1970s came on and actually some amount of evidence started to come on that we could actually modify organisms at the genetic level. And we started to see then thereafter the first model organisms that had extended lifespans. And we continue to do that. So, And we've gotten better at looking at um, the natural world and identifying what's happening with certain organisms that live very long outside of humans. And so that gives us the ability uh, to be a lot more confident. Uh, plus, you're going to see there's going to be a lot of human data coming out over the next few years. They're going to show certain areas of age reversal in certain persons. Sorry, I was running to an appointment. And um, that's going to, like, well, Greg Fay, for instance, with his uh, thymus regeneration, he showed some age reversal. You're going to continue to see that in human work, human studies, and in the biohacker community. Uh, so I think that uh, this is the time uh, that we're going to get a platform to take off. I think that we do have the technology that can extend human lifespan to the point of uh, getting that takeoff velocity that, that Aubrey talks about. But we have to get out there and we've got to get in into humans and we actually have to use it. I don't think that we can afford another mouse study. Um, they're not good predictive models of humans and we now need that human evidence. So my hat goes off to all of you out there who are getting that and collecting good data. Thanks. Yeah, I'd like to agree with Liz about the relevance and the, the critical relevance of human data. But we must also go back and ask ourselves what we are able to see from laboratory data. And I think a, a large part of the problem that, that you know, is encapsulated in the question, a large part of what does make things different now is still ongoing. Namely, we still have, we have more and more areas where we can point to dramatic progress uh, but then uh, other areas where we can't. So to put extreme examples, we can, you know, we can take nematode worms and uh, make them live 10 times longer than they normally do just with a single genetic intervention. But if we look at mice, the amount that we can extend their lifespan, whether mean or maximum, is pretty much the same as it was in the 1930s when Clive McKay discovered the benefits of calorie restriction, which is, you know, not a cause for optimism. So, you know, we have to, I think, accept that we still have a way to go in providing a, a really coherent body of data and a message to humanity to really ramify, really justify the claim that we are on the brink of dramatic breakthroughs. And maybe we'll never get there. I think one way of saying what Liz just said is that maybe the utility of animal models is just not sufficient and we will actually just get there by getting there with humans in terms of convincing humanity that this is possible. I would just add that in addition to the genetic manipulations there has been a lot of progress in animal models in, in pharmacological level so I, I am fairly optimistic about developing longevity drugs and I'm sure you're aware of um, a lot of 
folks that are working in this area and several companies as well. Now that's that's still a still far away from reversing aging. You know that that's that's. But at least we can show that in animal models we can delay aging with pharmacological interventions and ends. You know, I think that can serve as an impetus to, to say we need uh, more studies in this topic to have even more uh, impactful therapies. Since the topic of uh, human models has been brought up, um, Methuselah Foundation's portfolio companies, Organovo and Viscient Bio, um, already use human tissue constructs in uh, searching for and validating uh, small molecule drug interventions. And so it isn't something that's coming, it's something that is here. Uh, so as it's been said, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. And so that is something that uh, um, our foundation, Methuselah Foundation is uh, going to be working with NASA on as a, a next step in our tissue challenges series. Actually, David, I agree with you on that. The, the exciting thing about the, the, the future is that a lot of it is here. So I'm sitting here with, with a biosensor just stuck on my chest that's reading my vitals a thousand times a second. I've got this, uh, this ring on, I've got a watch, I have blood tests, I can do mouth swabs. It's just the beginning of being able to monitor ourselves to know sometimes years in advance whether we're going to get sick or not. Um, I don't think in the future people will die from heart attacks very often because of these devices. But what's exciting about this world that we're very, very rapidly moving into, and this device, by the way, that I'm wearing, um, there are many companies working on this and, and doctors use them to send patients home early from hospital, so that's a huge saving. But what, what we'll see is you, you can stick these uh, devices on, on a million people and take a million swabs or blood samples and process those and combine that with their medical records and either supplements or drugs that they're taking um, either in small cohorts or just because that's what they want to do. We are going to learn so much over the next decade. And I know we don't have a decade, but when you have a million people and uh, you know a lot of them are going to be old and frail, we're going to learn so much just by uh, these massive experiments that are becoming within grasp in terms of the cost to be able to carry them out. So I, if I could add something, uh, Laura, I think the way you framed the question, right, was how we're going to get, you know, the, enough of the population to reach 100 or 120, somewhere between there. Um, and, and for that, you know, I think a lot of what the panelists are, are talking about, there's good reason to be optimistic. Um, but we, I think we use the term age reversal a little too loosely, again, referring to performance measures or markers that have not really been validated in the sense of age reversal, where, you know, if, if you reverse age 20 years, you live 20 years longer. I think, again, those are more related to, you know, just the certain states of, of performance or states of physiology or cells, uh, but not necessarily the core of aging. Um, you know, as Aubrey pointed out earlier, you know, these, these haven't 
a lot of these markers, although excellent for, for measuring uh, the, the biological age, um, are not necessarily validated or haven't been validated yet for rejuvenation. But I think we can do better than 100 or 120 years. I think we can beat aging. Uh, you know, the things that uh, David G. has been uh, alluding to with human tissue constructs, there's a lot of interest, a lot of progress being made there. Um, and yes, they're great for testing drugs, but they're even better for replacing the old uh, body parts that, you know, in, in the elderly with young ones. That, that will reverse all aspects of aging biologically, you know, all the forms of damage, um, which are, you know, no, known to cause all these other hallmarks of aging. So, uh, you know, so I'm hoping, you know, m more in that direction will lead uh, to, to more optimism in terms of, you know, just breaking the cap off of the 120 or 100, 120 year uh, maximum that we're talking about. I think I want to uh, just agree that uh, the meaning of the epigenetic clocks needs to be re-validated. Uh, so the clocks have been developed to uh, sort of correlate with data that already exists. But if reversing the clock actually reverses aging or aspects of aging, we need to be able to show that by measuring aging in some other way. So one of the things that we're doing is to see if we can link grim age uh, changes to changes in coronary artery calcification or cardiopulmonary exercise testing capacity because these things predict your longevity uh, over time and uh, in the fairly near future too. So um, if your exercise capacity is much greater and if we can actually increase that and show that grim age uh, is reduced while exercise capacity is increased, uh, that would be pretty strong evidence that these therapies are actually working in the way that we hope that they are to actually reverse aspects of aging. Uh, there's actually evidence uh, in population studies that metformin use can reverse coronary artery calcification, which is a leading cause of heart disease and, and death. Uh, and that's part of our cocktail. So we have uh, some hopes that we'll be able to show these functional or, um, let's say, risk factor improvements that uh, should be able to independently predict the risk of death and hopefully agree with the predictions made by these clocks. But it's still early days. Um, thank you for that, everyone. I don't know if Alexandra and Pedro wanted to also chime in. And I wanted to um, say that my question was um, centered around the idea of, I am very interested in getting people um, wanting to have uh, to seek longevity or to have it as a lifestyle. So the reason I asked this question was because if we promise people 120 years or more of life right now, are we promising them something realistic? Versus if we say you're going to live longer with health span within your life, current lifespan, they might be more inclined to join um, on at longevity lifestyle and that's what that was the direction more that i was thinking but i loved all your answers david yeah so to, to reply to you directly uh january 15th i decided uh, that it was time for me at the age of 67 to eat my own dog food so uh under doctor's uh care i started taking uh, episodic rapamycin metformin fisetin 
and melatonin. I've lost uh, 35 pounds. I had the gait speed of a 90-year-old. Uh, I now am below the measurement point where people would be bothering to test my gait speed. I can do a pike and an L-sit um, without worrying about it. Uh, my, uh, the speed of my thinking has improved. Um, basically, when people see me, especially after the pandemic, they say, wow, what's happened to you? That's what's needed, Laura. Mere civilians looking at you and said, oh my darling, you look so wonderful. What have you done? And then we get to tell them. Longevity. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. David, I fully agree with you. <laughs> David, uh, Sinclair, you wanted to say something? Oh, well, my first thought was, uh, well done, David. That's, that's fantastic that you've done that and you're you know, a real role model for, for everyone. I was curious whether you've measured uh, yourself before and after with some of these biological age clocks. I did not do any of the clocks. Uh, what I did do was all of the uh, standard plus extended blood tests, um, all of the performance tests, uh, whole brain uh, MRI and joint MRI and CT scan thorax. Um, so I have a lot of a lot of data that will be before and after, but none of the clocks. The reason I didn't do the clocks is because of the error bars. Um, at the time that uh, I was looking at them, the error bars were plus or minus five to seven years. And so I did not feel that it was, uh, you know, strong enough to spend the money because it's expensive. Well, the best testament is how you actually look. And I know that in um, longevity discussions on Clubhouse, we've said that if people can't see the difference or feel it, it will be the biggest proof that uh, this um, leading a longevity lifestyle or taking um, some of these um, therapies do work. With that said, uh, we are almost at the top of the hour and I wanted to quickly reset the room. Uh, also open the the room for questions and let everybody else know that we will be bringing them up. We are looking for, um, we, we do hope that you have a bio and um, for you to be able to come up on stage. So we'll be doing that momentarily. But again, we wanted to welcome everybody to this um, panel with the scientists reversing aging and uh, without having to go into further introductions i will let abby go to the next question while we open up the stage for q for the q a thank you laura again and uh, thank you everyone um for answering the question if anybody um feels that they haven't um uh, been able to answer something or or something came up uh, as in they thought about something just now feel free to uh, you know, answer while you're answering the next question. So the next question is a little bit um, interesting. This comes up all the time. Um, I know many people here, like Aubrey, David Sinclair, uh, you have written uh, books um, and, and put out you know, the way you guys think and what you guys are thinking about the world of tomorrow. But many people ask about, uh, they kind of, kind of try to get to this question. So the question is, 
what are the two or three things? It doesn't have to be two or three things. If it's just one, that's fine. Um, what are the two or three things that you intrinsically believe that it is inevitable um, in the future of longevity, aging, health within the next decade? So it's a short time frame, I realize. But uh, what is it that you pretty much base all your experiments, your 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 your, your companies that you're building, all of these things that you're thinking about, um, your research, um, and so what are those things, and what are the obstacles do you think? Um, that can impede that progress. And this is only over the next decade. Uh, so please jump, feel free to jump in. Yeah, let me jump in first, because I'm afraid I have to jump off the call in a few minutes at the top of the hour. Um, so actually, the thing that I think is most inevitable over the next 10 years, since that time frame you asked about, is a change of public attitudes with regard to what's going to happen in the subsequent 10 or 20 years. At the moment... Almost everybody in the world still believes that they're probably going to live only a few years longer than their parents did. And indeed, that they're going to stay healthy for only a few years longer than their parents did. And I'm convinced that there will be a tipping point where the results and indeed the public statements of people like myself and David are going to change that. And when they do... Those, state, those changes are going to happen very, very suddenly. I believe there's going to be a really sharp tipping point, you know, when people like Oprah Winfrey get on board with this, that is going to introduce, is going to herald a very turbulent few years while we figure out what to do with the general belief on most people's parts that they're going to live healthily for a lot longer than their parents did. This is something that I don't think anybody's really ready for, in, whether it's in governments or in the financial services sector or wherever. And I think that it's very likely to happen within the next 10 years. I would say it's quite likely to happen within the next five years. Yeah, uh, Aubrey, well said. I can feel it already uh, in, in society. I, I think this clubhouse um, meeting here is evidence of that. It's really, we're living through this really historical moment where uh, I don't know if you've followed Aubrey and me for that long um, but even just 10 years ago and certainly 20 years ago we were really on the fringe and people thought we were crazy and, and it was actually frankly close to career ending to talk about age reversal I, I, I think it was about seven years ago I first started using that term and it was it was outrageous at a talk at Stanford so now now it's it's not mainstream yet, but it's about to break through um, and it's an exciting time. I just want to add, uh, what else will I see in 10 years? I think um, it'll be common to be monitored by your doctor. It'll be common to take senolytic cocktails. It'll be common to treat diseases with uh, therapies that reverse aging. Uh, whether it's the eye or the whole body, uh, I don't know, but I'm certain there will be uh, ways to reverse age, not, a, not just by a few years, and Greg, your your work is is amazing and awesome. Thank you for that. But by, by a decade or two, and and we've seen at least in animals now that the, the epigenetic age reset and the restoration of vision uh, it goes on for a long time. This may be quote unquote a permanent reset until you age out again, and then you can keep resetting the body. And we don't know how many times you can reset the body yet. Uh, we know it works once, but I would bet that it works. 10 or 100 times. And then we're really talking about a change in the way we can view our lifespan. 
By the way, we're very interested in that same question with respect to the thymus, David. Uh, if we regenerate the thymus, uh, can we then regenerate it again and again and again? So that's something we look forward to finding out. Oh, so I, I guess I'll chime in here. I, I, you know, I, I agree with that. I think that a lot of what you're going to see is attitudes changing, and I think that's fantastic, and that's absolutely necessary. You're going to see the, the slow uh, drive of data that's going to start to come through scientific papers showing um, extended lifespans in model organisms and then, you know, soon in humans. You're going to hear more people talk about it. But, of course, you know, an obstacle is always, you know, how difficult it is for small companies to get into clinical trials. So right now I'm uh, doing my thesis for my MBA, and it's vastly on um, a new route uh, of uh, regulation uh, through the FDA. Well, not through the FDA, going around the FDA, uh, but through the same uh, departments of human and health services in order to get people who are terminally ill access to better drugs. And so the right to try doesn't give access to the drugs that we're talking about today. I call them best choice medicine. And that's drugs that perform better in early basic research than anything we have available on the market. And those drugs exist. And that's what everyone on this call is talking about. But these are still vastly experimental, but without human data, uh, we can't really get to them. So hopefully we'll get uh, the regulators to look at new routes that indemnify themselves from the difficult choices that they have to make in making decisions about new drugs. And uh, people will see that. They will see new options open uh, for uh, patients to take part in. Uh, they'll see more data coming out. And, you know, what can block us is, of course, the uh, enormous amount of money that it costs otherwise uh, to get to even the regulatory service, millions and millions of dollars worth of animal data that, again, is not a very good predictor. And then um, the $2.6 billion estimate from Tufts University uh, to actually get a drug approved. So, uh, you know, let's remove those roadblocks. Alexandra, João, David, Jean, anybody else want to want to chime in about uh, intrinsically knowing what uh, you know what the next decade looks like? Um, I can tell you what our uh, provisional roadmap is, if you'd like. Yeah, please. Uh, I mean, that'll that'll definitely be based on your on your system. That I mean, on your things that you kind uh, kind of believe. Right. So um, uh, our vision is to make ninety the new fifty by twenty thirty. We deliberately chose a falsifiable goal, twenty thirty. That's eight and a half uh -huh. years from now. So we have to figure out where the holes are that would prevent that from happening. And so, in no particular order. Uh, we need to be able to deliver biological payloads to select body compartments far better than is available today. So delivery as a whole. Um, we need reliable, high-quality bulk cell supplies. Right now, there's not nearly enough uh, high-quality cells available to purchase. One of the biggest rate limiters for the competitors in the vascular tissue challenge uh, competition was they just couldn't get the cells in order to do their um, organ organoid constructs. Uh, so we need high, reliable bulk cell supplies. 
distribution. Well, what do you who you who's going to you know deliver these interventions? It's going to be licensed practitioners. Do any of them know anything about what we're doing in significant numbers? Uh, my experience is that physicians pretty much stop reading papers the day they get out of the university because they have no time. They're spending all their time dealing with insurance companies and such. And of course, I'm speaking hyperbolically. I know there are exceptions and they're wonderful. So also trusted validation. Do you know that the pill that you're taking actually has any of the crud you're actually trying to get inside of you? I mean, we, I have no idea if the stuff I'm taking is actually the stuff I think I'm taking. That's missing. Um, let's see. The regulators need to accept patient trials in a dish uh, because models that are based on animal models are awful. They're not just not very good. They're awful. And they're awful in, in ways that people don't even think of anymore. If you were to say, uh, is it okay to just take these animals and torture them and ruin them and break them apart and stick things in them? No, it's not okay. It's just what we have to do today. We have to get away from that. It's a moral imperative. Aside from patient trials and additions, well, just much better, vastly better in terms of speed and accuracy of coming up with uh, interventions. Uh, engineered functional organs, so we um, need to go to a next level for the vascular tissue challenge to scale it up to actual clinically relevant uh, constructs like liver patches and so forth. Optimize nutrition biofeedback. Okay, you're eating this leaf. Is it really good? Sure, it says organic, but is there anything in it that I need? And by the way, what do I need? And that's based on our deep space food challenge with NASA. Um, you should perhaps look that up. Deep space food challenge is a wonderful challenge being put on by Na NASA, excuse me, NASA and Methuselah. Individuals need to own their own biodata so that they can get uh, prescriptions and um, uh, diagnosis. This might go on to the blockchain. And then uh, let's see, one more thing. Uh, hmm. There's always one more thing. I think I've taken up too much time, sorry. I might add very briefly, because I'm sure we want to get to questions, uh, that, and, and hopefully this is a safe prediction, that the enthusiasm uh, for longevity research and the funding that goes along with that continues to increase in the next 10 years. Um, that's all I wanted to, say, to add. So, if, so just two quick points. I mean, I, I certainly think that in terms of longevity, um, as John was saying, yes, I think it's going to increase. Uh, people are not going to get younger. We still have an aging population, so there will continue to be interest in um, developing interventions. So I certainly see um, the development of longevity, pharmacology and longevity drugs as, as happening, becoming a reality in the next 10 years. Um, I'm a little less optimistic about rejuvenation technologies or reversing aging. 
uh, first because we don't really know how to do it in, in even in animal models we can manipulate aging we can delay aging in animal models including in mice but we don't know how to reverse aging um so i think there's there's still there's still a lot we have to figure out um in that context i think there's some promising approaches i mean david c Clare were talking about uh you know the um Yamanaka factors or three of the Yamanaka factors that they've used, um, but it's still not very clear how you then turn that into a human therapy, for instance. Um, so, so I would say the next 10 years, yes, I see a continued growth in longevity industry, longevity biotech, uh, research on aging, um, development of longevity drugs, uh, but not necessarily, unless there's a big massive discovery, not necessarily on reversing aging on, or rejuvenation technologies. Thank you, Pedro. I want to give a chance to Alexandra and Greg to perhaps also answer this before we go into the Q&A. We're very happy to have so many people interested in asking questions and wanting to chime in the conversation. Um, just wanted to move this along. As you saw, a couple of our speakers had to leave. So I want to make sure that we're um, we get to answer as many questions as possible as um, other of our speakers probably have to leave as well. But um, uh, Alexandra, Greg, want to chime in? I'll let Alexandra go first. Okay, if you want to. Um, I would hope that uh, people would take uh, more interest in their own health and would become more empowered. And, and um, all these kind of like positive signs that are coming from the trials that are currently running. Um, would kind of inspire them to really become invested in their own health and um, kind of like try out more um, and, and pay more attention to their health. So I would hope that this is a trend that carries on and becomes bigger. And I just think that uh, the example that we're trying to set, which is to show that aging intervention can be done now, uh, begins to catch on as a, as a concept and uh, as the evidence accumulates, I think it'll become more and more obvious that something significant is actually happening. Uh, Sergey Young has recently bought into the idea of using repurposed drugs to advance the cause of aging intervention. I think it's a really good idea because the barriers to getting these things through FDA approval process are quite light. For example, with our therapy, we were able to show statistically significant improvements in kidney function in nine guys uh, in a, in a one-year period of time. So if that could be made into a yardstick for FDA approval, we should have a ridiculously easy time compared to people who are attempting to develop entirely new drug entities. And by the way, there are ways that we can uh, improve uh, human growth hormone to uh, make that into a, uh, a separately approvable drug that we can essentially own ourselves as well. Uh, so that even though it's a repurposed drug, it, it's effectively a new drug. So this kind of paradigm, if, if this leads to early signs that you can actually do something meaningful on a clinical basis about aging, uh, not in 10 years or 20 years, but maybe in one or two or three years, uh, then I do think the attitudes will begin to change uh, in an optimistic direction. I'm already seeing lots of signs of this. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing increasing enthusiasm over the possibility. So I do think that there is a sea change coming uh, and it's going to be boosted uh, by many, many different advances that are all coming into aging from different directions. Uh, but I think that we're beginning to see signs of this happening already. 
Thanks, Greg. Um, we're going to go now to our Q&A uh, part of the this discussion. And the first one up is Adam. Adam, nice to see you. Welcome stage. Please go ahead and ask your question. Hi, Laura. Thank you. And thanks uh, to the panel and the moderators. This has been incredible. <clears throat> so uh, I'm an entrepreneur and uh, angel investor, and I, I've uh, had an interest in longevity for for. Uh, more than a decade and, and now getting more involved uh, on a functional basis. Uh, I have a, two kind of questions. Um, one is, what is, in your opinion, uh, the most overlooked or undervalued area where 10xing the resources can create the biggest leverage and impact on uh, moving the space forward? So uh, overlooked or undervalued areas where 10xing the resources uh, can make an impact. And then the second uh, question is, what is the craziest uh, but exciting recent idea you've heard that you think might just work? Those are my questions. Thank Any of our panelists, please feel free to uh, take on this uh, question. I'll take a stab. Um, or Liz, do you want to go first? Oh, no, go ahead. I concede. Okay. Um, so, I may be a bit of an outsider here, but, you know, I think a lot of the um, approaches that are being used now or contemplated uh, for use in, in reversing aging and portrayed as potentially having a big impact might not work. Uh, for example, epigenetics, right? I think the experiments have already been done. There's a lot of examples for at least a dozen tissues where young cells have been taken and put into an old environment. So they have a young epigenome, uh, they have young mitochondria, you know, they have everything going for them, but they behave like they're old in the new environment. So if we don't address the, um, the environment of the cells, the whole tissue, uh, we're not gonna get very far. So I think that's the, to me, that's what's most overlooked with all the current approaches. And of course, the answer is tissue replacement. So you replace the environment of the cells with the cells. And, you know, a 10x investment in that, I think, would make a huge difference um, in terms of moving the field forward. I mean, it's, it's a difficult thing, like uh, David G. alluded to already, right? It's, you know, making tissues is not easy, but it's what's going to work. Um, you, you, you know, even if you don't understand what the aging process is, if you make these young, if you replace all old tissues with new tissues, you know, you're, you're going to succeed in reversing aging. Um, so that, that, that's my answer. That's also what I'm most excited about because of the progress being made in these areas, including for the brain, which is the area that we work on. Okay. Uh, well, I... Oh, sorry, Alexandra, did you want to go? Uh, as you like. I, okay, I can I take a step at this. Uh, I have to really agree with, with uh, Jean. Uh, the cellular matrix is so unsexy uh, in the moment. Like, not a lot of people are focusing on it, but it is so important for, like, cell function and the overall structure of our body and really uh, um, kind of, like, improving um, and kind of studying it would really help a lot. And what is kind of the most... Uh, daring um, aspect of an intervention. Um, it's something that maybe Joe Pedro is involved in a little bit, and it is kind of like, instead of already fixing what we have, 
the idea of maybe creating a new system, so kind of like doubling with what makes us human and maybe daring to give us new genes or maybe new functions that could help with the anti-aging therapies. I think that's daring, but also super exciting. Okay, I'm just going to go. Liz, do you want to go ahead? Oh, yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, we only know our own area. I mean, pretty much uh, the gene therapy space takes up all of our time. Uh, but, you know, I mean, where we think that we would get the biggest bang for the buck um, is where we're going next is combinatorial gene therapies, getting the basic early profile on the safety of those and probably animal models, unfortunately, and then uh, human cells and then going to humans. And so I think there we have an exponential bang for the buck because uh, we will have a unlimited multitude of combinations. We're looking at four genes now, but there's a myriad more uh, that are interesting. And then, of course, George Church is, has got his huge set, and he's an advisor of ours. Um, I don't know. Um, I think that'll be really great. And the unexpected areas, I mean, those are all of the areas that you just hope keep going. So no one on this call wants to block the cure for aging. And honestly, we don't know who the players will be. And you know, what sort of technology needs to be designed. So from everything from the cribiform plate to um, the, the basic research in, in very um, odd and strange places or um, uh, taking the genes from other species for regeneration, you know, these are all areas that we want to see developed uh, so that we can learn from them and, and make better therapies ourselves. So um, all of the unexpected places um, that we that I can't imagine at this point. I just hope that everyone uh, just puts in, you know, their passion and a hundred percent, and that's what will make the difference. If I, I could jump in, go ahead, Greg, and then David. Okay, thank you. Um, I think one thing that catches my attention is uh, Irina and Mike Convoy's uh, recent discovery that plasma replacement may have a rejuvenating, uh, rejuvenating effect on the body. Uh, they need to collect a lot more data on this, but what they do have is suggestive and it's consistent with what we are doing, which is to, uh, to change the hormonal milieu of the body. And the, the point was made, I think, by Alexandria before and other uh, extracellular environment of the cells is very, very important. I think that's true. And I think that just replacing cells and putting them into an old environment is going to produce old cells because the cells will take the cues from the old environment that they're supposed to be old. The environment by factors such as removing old uh, age Greg, we lost. Oh, yeah. We're, oh, we lost okay. you for a second, but you, you're All back. Right. We can hear you. Okay, thanks. I think I changed my position. Yeah, so just to say that again, so if, if you can change the old environment, either by taking out the old age factors or putting in uh, pro-longevity factors, that would be the convoy approach versus the intervene immune approach or both, uh, then I think you can make some major... Thanks, Greg. We lost you there, so I'm going to let David go. So uh, in answer to the question, an area that I find very intriguing and I've actually tried myself is hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Um, Adam, you could uh, take a look at the work of Shai Afrati in Israel. That's H-A-I-E-F-R-A-T-I. -E um, 
His research has uh, shown rejuvenation um, in brain injury, stroke injury, massive stroke injury, where the uh, additional uh, oxygen in solution in the plasma has rejuvenated, uh, brought back to life areas of the brain that were fully ischemically dead. Uh, that phrase may be awkward, but there it is. Um, also, a recent study by them showed that uh, it uh, increased the length of telomeres, which they were not expecting, and it also uh, behaves as a rapalog, just hyperbaric oxygen. So it's a fascinating field. Uh, I decided to try it since there was, uh, you know, decades of research uh, done by the Navy and continuing in the scientific community. Um, I had, for instance, a uh, uh, left eye was uh, reaching toward a glaucoma state. I had uh, intraocular pressure of 36 in my left eye, and it went down to 25 after uh, eight weeks of hyperbaric oxygen therapy at 1.35 atmospheres, nine liters per minute, and that resulted in an improvement in both of my eyes, and especially my left eye, to normalize it. And neither drugs nor surgery could have improved it that much, according to uh, my uh, ophthalmologist. Um, also, I'd just like to take the opportunity to speak for David Sinclair and for Turn Bio that the research that we're doing on epigenetic reprogramming is showing euthening, very much so. So while it may, be, may not be logical, it does work. It does uh, rejuvenate these organisms. Um, so um, I'm reminded of how the Romans did not know why arch bridges with arches worked. But for 2,000 years, that was okay. We didn't know why it worked, but it did work. Eventually, hopefully, we will know. <laughs> uh, Adam, great question. Thanks again for being here. Um, Skip, if you could go ahead, please. Oh, Siddiqui, sorry. Yes, hi, uh, Laura. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is Skip. You were right. Um, First of all, thank you to the moderators for having the MVPs of H reversal here in um, in living room atmosphere on Clubhouse. Um, I have one simple question, a yes or no question. So um, according to the Singapore-based company, Jero AI, with um, Tim Perkov, Peter Fijicev, and Maxim Point, um, the lifespan, maximum lifespan, if you have perfect health, would be between 120 and 150 years. Is that, a, is that something that you support, yes or no? No. Jean, Alexandra? David, you want to expand on that? <laughs> he said he just wanted a yes or no. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I wanted to make it short because I have another okay. question. I, no, no. Alexandra? <laughs> oh, Greg, go ahead, please, Greg. Yeah, the answer to that is no. If you had uh, no aging, which I would define as a state of perfect health, 
then you would have the same risk of death as a 12-year-old. And if you look at the statistics of that, uh, you would have a half-life of about 960 years. Yeah, I, th I think the answer is it's really complicated because I think what they were trying to, they, they did take a lot of data and they were just showing that uh, healthy for your age, I think. Don't, I, I think we can agree with it. They were talking about resilience with health in relation to your age, but we're talking about ultimate health. Um, we're talking about health that is um, not compromised uh, by any of the deleterious effects of aging. And so in that case, you, you get something that we don't talk about a lot because we talk about increasing health spans, but you, you probably then break the bottleneck of lifespan as well. Pedro and Alexandra. Thanks, Liz. So, I mean, it's a no for me as well. As, as, as the others have mentioned, if, you know, ideal scenario you have, Greg was saying, uh, if you don't age, then you're going to live potentially thousands of years. So, so it's also a no. And I would just add, if you're, you know, perfectly disease-free, so healthy for your age as you progress, um, I don't think you can get beyond 120 without interventions. Thank you for that great question, Skip. Um, it very it clarified really where uh, lifespan, how far lifespan can go, I think, at least for this moment. Lawrence, welcome to the stage. Please go ahead and ask your question. Hello. It's an honor to be here on stage with you guys. Um, I would like to take um, the second part, for example, from Adam's question and focus it a bit, little bit. Um, so I, I'm an entrepreneur that came into, uh, that decided to have an impact in this industry a few years ago, and I spent most of it trying to learn a lot because uh, I didn't feel like I could have an impact without knowing um, the science. And um, then I started investing. And one crazy idea that finally got me excited and I'm actually getting involved is, is VitaDAO, this decentralized autonomous organization that um, might just work to... Um, turn the whole model of funding um, drug development on its on its head. And my question is basically, do you think, um, or are there any big issues that you see in the industry that might just need some out-of-the-box thinking like that and, and uh, benefit from this kind of uh, new type of organization? Um, absolutely. I think that you bring up a very good point where we seem to be, uh, many people have talked about the singularity and what we really seem to be headed toward is an event horizon where institutions themselves and the laws that enable them are being shredded, folded, mutilated, and spindled. And so other things have an opportunity to arise while these things these other institutions are busy trying to figure out how to stay alive. 
being able to enable um, large groups of people with common cause across distributed networks is an absolutely unstoppable force. Um, so I recommend and I uh, hope that you do accomplish um, aiming such organizational structures at solving aging. Yeah, I would like to hear from each one of you maybe something that you're really frustrated by and, and something that you, you don't even dare usually to say that, hey, this is a problem uh, and something that might require just something completely different. That's 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 the sweet spot I'm looking for from each one of you. Well, I agree with everything David said about this this mechanism being useful. I would just hope that it's not restricted to uh, you know drug centric uh, focus, right? Um, I don't want to no. sound like a broken record, but there you know there are other approaches uh, that uh, I I personally I think are more likely to work. Uh, uh, those would be the ones. Anything that has IP, so even a video, even a movie, can can be funded by this right. type of new vehicle. Um, so therapeutics, any kind of therapeutics, but also yeah. other things. Yeah, great. Any comments from Greg, Liz, and Alexandra in terms of funding models for longevity? I guess we, um, Lawrence, I hope that the comments from both David and Jean were good. And um, yes, very much looking forward to the Vida Dao token um, auction. You mind David? if I say something, Laura? Yes, of course. Go ahead, David. So, so Lawrence, um, many of us have many ideas. And we, while we are also working in the public interest, we also have donors and um, investors who... Uh, want to get first crack at whatever might turn out to be brilliant ideas. So we may be loath to divulge um, future business models and strategies if that's what um, you might have been looking for. I would suggest that if you have an interest in that kind of thing or you have an idea of your own to reach out individually rather than in a public space. Thank you, David. That was a great comment. And Lawrence, I hope you um, it will, you got your answer. Um, we're going to move now to Elena. Welcome to the stage. Please go ahead and ask your question. Hi, everyone. Thanks for um, for uh, giving me the uh, the chance to be here. Um, so yeah, my question has to do with uh, what David previously mentioned. So he mentioned that Organovo is working on on human um, uh, physiologically relevant issues, basically to um, to improve the preclinical um, um, uh, investigation of different drugs. And Liz also mentioned that we we literally just can't afford having another uh, mouse trial that will fail later on. And having a stem cell biology background myself, uh, my question to the um, um, to the speakers is: Why do you think there is no uh, no further, no, no uh, wider adoption of, um, more of, of stem cell tissues, organoids, and more physiologically relevant human tissues 
in terms of preclinical studies, because for me, when I look at, um, at the relevance and at the uh, utility of such models uh, for, for drug discovery, um, you know, I think that this should be given in every preclinical study that we have a comparison of, of um, some mouse data with um, with some data derived from 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 human tissues, basically that we can now um, grow um, in a lab. We, we can have organ on a chip. We can have um, basically human tissue human tissue in a petri dish. And for me, it's actually quite surprising that despite all these advancements that we have in the in the stem cell field, we still don't have a more uh, wide adoption of, of these technologies for preclinical drug discovery? I, I think it's coming. I mean, I totally agree that this is a model that these human tissues in a dish um, need to continue developing. But I, I think there's a lot of growing interest and a lot of progress being made there. David, you can say more about that. Um, and, and certainly in terms of uh, safety and, you know, their, their basic uh, metabolic consequences of the drugs or whatever therapy you're trying, um, they are a little bit limited, though, in terms of studying aspects of aging and the reversal of aging, again, because they're such young tissues, even if they're in a dish. So a lot of people are planning on using this for um, Parkinson's interventions or Alzheimer interventions. But there it's very difficult to mimic, you know, the decades of development or, or, or degeneration that are necessary uh, to start looking at the phenotype and phenotype reversal. So, so I totally agree with you. We need these uh, tissues, uh, but they're not going to be a total panacea. There might still be need for animal testing before going to humans. Yes, of course. Did anyone else of our panelists want to address that? Uh, thanks for the answer, Jean. Liz? Yeah, sorry. I think that I've been in and out, and I'm not sure that I uh, fully understood the, the question. But um, I think that the question was to the effect of why we're not seeing these type of treatments in clinical trials at this point uh, for the vast majority of what we're talking about. Yeah, that's correct. Well, you know, it's a really actually it's a complicated process. So, you know, we just saw the approval of the first drug in 20 years for Alzheimer's. That's a monoclonal antibody that actually doesn't look like it works very well. And um, patients, you know, demanded access to it. And that's fantastic because that shows that patients still have a voice just like they did in AIDS. You know, they said they demand access to new treatments. But it's vastly because of the slow development through the FDA. So when drugs come through the FDA, they're really 12 years old. They're old drugs. They're, they're not new drugs. They're not the best choice medicine. And so, you know, what was happening 12 years ago is the beta amyloid plaque theory. And, uh, you know, that beta amyloid plaques were, were the downstream effect of Alzheimer's and therefore they must be removed. Well, in the meantime, a lot of other ideas came about, but they require millions of dollars worth of animal studies to, to prove, to show evidence. And, and that's why, you know, our company has done some pretty innovative things by working with medical tourism companies to look at their data. 
uh, because that's really important data to humans, what happens in humans. And I think we're going to see a shift in that really soon. We'll be releasing a paper in a couple of months about that. But um, when the when the regulators are really stuck on a theory and, and the medical community is too, it's hard to get new ideas through without a lot, a lot of money um, in areas that have to show evidence uh, to uh, new ideas working in humans. So I think that that's vastly it. And, and now we're at that, that switching point where funding is coming in and, and the studies are being done and, um, and ideas are expanding that maybe old ideas weren't the best ideas. And, and so this is, um, you know, a time that we have to really look towards the future um, rather than uh, moving towards the past. But patients need to demand access uh, to this new technology and, and they need to keep abreast of it. And so following nonprofits and small biotech companies uh, will definitely um, lighten your heart in this area quite a bit. I might just say that if the question was why are uh, studies uh, not being done on stem cell use in preclinical models, uh, I don't have any real insight into that uh, situation. But uh, what I would think uh, might be a factor is the barriers to entry of stem cell therapies clinically. So if, if there's going to be a lot of... Uh, uh, obstacles to getting stem cell therapies approved in humans, uh, that may reduce the motivation to do those stem cell studies in animal models. Uh, but that's just a guess. I think that Greg hit on a, a good point there too. And, you know, I, I, I think the FDA is great. I think that safe and effective drugs are what people need. Uh, I do believe that we need to use another route to getting there. But, you know, Stem cells are a great example of something that's been around for literally decades now, but it took the FDA over a decade to decide if they were a drug. And until that, until then, everything was held up. So we were seeing, you know, great uh, examples of use in Wake Forest and various universities. But, you know, anything that was done clinically outside of the U.S. was considered um, you know, snake oil. And, 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 and I, what I'm guessing is there, there's a halfway road in between all of that. And what we need is just a new path in order to, to vet and source and, and better understand how these drugs work in humans in an open uh, forum where uh, scientists can actually uh, view the data, work with patients and, and get the access and the approval of these drugs much faster. Shall I go ahead? Yes, David, please go ahead. So there's an unexamined area that is a barrier that has been caused by a pernicious adaptation by venture capital trying to achieve the art of the possible. The key goal of a venture capitalist is to have an exit with a positive result, some multiple of the amount invested the amount of time that it takes to get through the, um, the crucible of getting an approved drug is usually beyond the time horizon of most venture capitalists. So how do they get their exits? Well, it's turned out that you can get wonderful data and results from mice that will encourage people to go ahead and invest. And then you can get 
a safety profile in a phase one, at which time somewhere in there, venture capitalists can get their exit. The public then comes in because it's going to be the best thing since sliced bread. And usually it doesn't work because mice are a horrible model. They almost always fail. But the venture capitalists, who are good people, generally speaking, need to get out and they do. And so we have this, um, I don't know, mess, logjam, that has been organized and is financially successful, but it is not actually successful. So to break that uh, paradigm, if I'm right, what you need to do is to financially make it an unviable model for the venture capital community. And that's something that we've been noodling on a lot here at the foundation. I'm sure the VC would rather not it, that it not be that way. Oh, well, it's amazing how it always goes back to funding, right? <laughs> Um, we are almost at the top of the hour. Uh, we have 15 more minutes. So, uh, we'll, as much as we love to stay here with everybody, we're cognizant of everyone's time and the work they have to do to actually extend our longevity. So if we could have the next four questions be answered by two, um, of the speakers so that we, uh, actually get through them, that would be amazing. Terry, welcome to the stage. Please go ahead and ask your question. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for your great moderation. And um, thank you to all of the experts that are here today on the panel. My question um, is actually twofold. What do you see are the non-pharmacological lifestyle-based key drivers of longevity, expanding lifespan and reversing aging? Fitness, nutrition, sleep, controlling our environment or combination. And um, I would love for you to also to speak to the efficacy of some of the pharmacological interventions when lifestyle is, is taken into consideration. For example, uh, somebody with a low risk of developing certain diseases, no history of smoking, eats well, exercises, controlling their environmental factors, would somebody like that be a better candidate for some of these pharmacological interventions as opposed to someone who has a history of lifestyle behaviors that are not conducive to longevity? Thank you so much. This is Harry and I'm done. Who would like to take that? Maybe David, because of his own longevity journey. What do you think, David? Well, um, non-pharmacological would be joy. Uh, our culture seems to make a lot of its money by scaring us out of our wits 24-7. That is extremely unhealthy for us. Get outside, look at robins and look at, um, oh, I don't know, bluebirds. Walk in the forest, get away from social media, which is kind of ironic, isn't it, Terry? <laughs> we gave out our fourth prize for the Methuselah Mouse Prize to a mouse that lived an extra year, which was a 25% lifespan improvement. What was the cause? The animal handler turned him into a pet, always changed his uh, cage by putting in new toys every week, loving it, 
uh, petting it, changing his kibble, and that resulted in a massive lifespan. So that's what I would do, and that's what I actually do do. Thank you for that, David. Um, it's sometimes the simple things that can have the most effect. Um, Terry, I hope that was, a, I think I agree. Well, I don't think I fully agree with David in terms of uh, some simple things that one can do. And then there's the science, which is going to take us further. Um, thank you for your question again, Terry. Aaron, welcome to the stage. Please go ahead, ask your question. Oh, this is going to be for everybody, but um... To what extent do you think that aging is programmed? Uh, or first of all, do you think aging is programmed? And then to what extent do you think aging is programmed? Uh, any of you can take this. <laughs> or, I can, or not. <laughs> Sorry? Go ahead, Dan. Maybe okay. we can make it yeah, a lightning yeah, round yeah. if you want to hear from everybody. Yeah, there, there isn't really any evidence for um, genetic programming of aging. Of course, genes determine lifespan. You can just compare species to know that that's the case. But in terms of genes that are actively engaged in making us older, there really isn't any evidence to that. I know people point to certain examples of um, behaviors that lead to death, uh, but those are encoded behaviors. It's not really aging like salmon, you know, dying when they spawn. And there's many examples like that. But, um, but there isn't any uh, real evidence for, uh, you know, genes whose purpose is to make us age uh, faster. Okay, uh, just to focus on that, what's your interpretation of menopause? Um, I would my, say, yeah, Dave, you want to take that? If you don't mind, I, sure. I would. I would say it's a protective um, event to prevent um, unfortunate uh, offspring, whether that is programmed or a guardrail is arguable. So when you get into the word program versus non-program. You get into some very fuzzy semantics, and I don't plan on getting into that. But what I would say is that there clearly are growth programs and that these are not behavioral. It's just your bones do get longer as you're growing. And then somewhere around 25 to 26, that stops. There's this theory of hyperfunction, which is that the body continues to grow in pernicious ways um, and that mTOR, uh, the mechanistic target of rapamycin, is a um, governor that has lost the plot. And that rapamycin slows it back down and therefore aging, as we call it, slows down. But program versus non-program, I don't think we know enough. And I think that there's too many folks who are... Uh, who are cheerleaders for one role or another, and I'm, I, I do not know, so I cannot say. Uh, I, would I, just, I would just oh. add from an evolutionary perspective, most species never had the luxury of, of having selection for or against longevity because they would die uh, 
even humans not that long ago, of things other than age or age-related diseases. Um, so I think, you know, that's another argument for why it's hard to imagine how genes could have even evolved to uh, promote aging specifically. I think that the idea of programmed aging needs to pause on the word programmed. It depends on what we mean by that. There's actually a tremendous amount of evidence in support of quote-unquote programmed aging, but what is it really saying? I, I think, for example, uh, we're all programmed to have thymic involution when we go through puberty, uh, but is that intended to shorten the lifespan or is that for some other reason? It may not be evolution intent to kill us by involuting the thymus, but that a biological choice, that program choice, inevitably makes us die eventually. Maybe not in the old days, but it does, uh, it does now. So for all practical purposes, that's absolutely programmed aging, but it's not necessarily selected for specifically for that reason. And there are infinite other examples of that sort of thing. And if you'd like to read a hundred page treatise on the subject, uh, look at my book chapter in the future of aging which is published in 2010, and, and you'll, you'll see uh, how actually the body uh, ages by uh, the existence of default uh, processes in the adult that can be changed by various kinds of intervention. And the, the example that Aubrey mentioned of a worm that uh, through a single gene mutation is able to live 10 times longer than usual is pretty good evidence that aging is under biological control. So you can call it programmed, you can just call it uh, physiologically controlled aging, whatever you call it, it's real enough that you know we can give hormones that decline with aging to older people and reverse their epigenetic aging, improve lung function, all kinds of other stuff. So, uh, and Irina Convoy can subtract old age factors from old animals uh, and possibly humans and, and, and get signs of rejuvenation of those animals as well which wouldn't happen if we weren't accumulating de deleterious things with aging. Uh, and all of this is linked back to the epigenetic uh, clock because the epigenetic clock can smoothly predict age from all ages, from fertilization of the egg cell until death. It's not a discontinuous function. It's a smooth, continuous function, implying that there's an underlying developmental process that explains not only normal development, but also aging. So it's a deep subject. We don't have time to go into the details now. There's a lot of mythology about it, pro and con, uh, but uh, there's a lot to be talked about here. And I think that that, that opens up huge uh, opportunities for intervention and aging as well. You're right, Greg. This is a completely, uh, it's like a subject of conversation for another panel discussion because it is a very interesting question, Aaron. Always asking the hard questions, Aaron. Um, I would love to for Alexandra to chime in if she can. Alexandra, are you still there? She's she left. Uh, I'm still here. Oh, sorry, sorry you were on, you were, you disconnected. Sorry. Yeah, I just stopped for a minute. Um, I, I don't have really much to add. Like Greg, all summarized it very beautifully. Um, there are so many examples where an intervention led to uh, a longer lifespan, and I think that gives a lot of indication that um, it's not programmed. Thank you for that, Alexandra. And just before we're at the top of the hour, I wanted to, again, thank everybody for being here. Please follow um, our panelists.
Um, so you can find out more about their work. A lot of them have written books. A lot of them have projects on the go. And um, the more we talk about our longevity and uh, know the science, the more prepared we're going to be for what's coming ahead in the future. We have two more questions before we finish the panel today. Sean and Jordan, you're the last one on stage. Sean, please go ahead. Hi, would Jordan want to go ahead of me? I wanted to be up late for her time. Uh, either way. <laughs> oh, ladies first, please, Jordan. All right, awesome. Thank you. Uh, first of all, thanks to all the speakers and the organizers. It's been really uh, very interesting. Um, so a lot of you have uh, sort of criticized mouse models for good reason. And one big like knock against them in my mind is that lab mice have artificially long telomeres, or at least most of the um, mice used in the US. But given all the data that's already been generated in mice, what do you think the best way is to sort of interpret these studies knowing that they very poorly mimic like key parts of aging, such as exhaustion of like proliferative capacity? Uh, any of the speakers, I'd be interested to hear your opinion. Are you referring specifically to the telomere story or to mice as a model in general? Uh, more specifically to telomeres as it relates to aging. Um, but I guess mice as a model for longevity too works. Well, if uh, no one else wants to say anything, I'll just very briefly say that uh, the models in which uh, telomeres were artificially shortened in mice and then re-elongated uh, does provide a lot of evidence that telomere shortening can be relevant in aging models, depending upon how much shortening actually takes place in a, in a given organism in its natural lifespan. Yeah, not as, not as much talking about that story, and I've actually, I have, I have seen that for <laughs> firsthand and worked on uh, lengthening telomeres in mice. I guess just more talking about like for example, you talked about the heterochronic uh, parabiosis and uh, the convoys have done is and just removing old plasma. Um, so like studies like that are in mice. They're really exciting, really awesome. But there are a lot of problems with the mice models. So I guess what what is your framework for thinking about those studies and translating them to like a more relevant model or like humans? Um, the uh, Methuselah Foundation does not engage in any telomere research or support any companies involved in telomere research. We're not against it. We just think that there are uh, areas that have much higher probability of having um, disproportionate impact. As far as mouse models in general, we think that my, mice have served us well. We have used mice to prove that human uh, lifespan extension is plausible by giving the Methuselah House Prize out four times for a 25% um, on average increase in lifespan. Well, they've done yeoman work. It's time to move on to something that it will actually work for humans, and that's our view. I would say mouse models are good in some respects and not so good in other respects. I think the mouse and the rat are good models of immunological aging in, in people, so I like them for that reason. Uh, I think they can be very misleading when you start getting in the ch transgenic animal models because 
unless you express the transgene only in the adult state, I don't think you have a valid model. For example, the growth hormone knockout uh, mice are physiologically horrible. They live longer because they're raised under artificial conditions. And part of the reason that they work is that you're reprogramming the way the brain is wired to prevent late life brain inflammation, which is nothing that benefits us you know, as already existing adults. So I think that it depends on the model. There are good models. There are models that are not so great. Alexandra, so go ahead, Alexandra. The, the advice is always choose your model wisely and know what like the condition of your model is. So, um, but it mice have been used a lot, um, but recently I've seen more and more dog work. There's the work on rapamycin in companion dogs. And I think we will be seeing more of this. So uh, large animal models might be better, but I think we don't have a lot of experience with it yet. Um, but there is a variety out there and I think they will become more kind of useful in the future. Thank you, Alexandra. Thanks for your question, Jordan. And last but not least, Shan, please go ahead and ask your question. The last one of the day. Thank you so much, Laura. And I just want to say everyone on here is an absolute fascinating. And I think uh, there's one common goal. How can we live longer and more productive lives? And I think it's amazing that people are working very hard towards, uh, you know, obviously this objective. Um, I wanted to share a little bit of information and then follow up with a question. You know, I, I look at aging and longevity um, more from a physical standpoint, more from a, a posture, right? I, mean, I, I believe that there is a design to the body based on gravity. And, you know, as you know, I think there's a riddle of the Sphinx, which is, you know, thousand years old, where eventually man does head to the cane. And I'm, I'm very curious on the impact of posture um, against the cellular level, um, as far as your research. And what we've noticed, and our founder actually discovered, was actually the exercise that he was doing at a younger age, was actually training his body away from the design of the body, um, actually causing his pain and injury. Um, you look at 80% of the world's population have lower back issues. And most of the time, once you have a lower back a, a shoulder, a hip related issue, you're eventually either going to get it replaced or you just stop moving, right? You basically say, I'm no longer going to play uh, the sport or things that I enjoy. I'm not going to walk as much or run or whatnot. Well, what if it was as simple as actually training muscle to pull the body back into design and there's no longer pain? There's no longer that rubbing or what's actually causing the recurring issues at that joint. Uh, we actually worked with major athletes around the world that have relied on PRP and a lot of the different things that you can do to give you a temporary relief. Uh, but I don't see anyone really talking about how do you permanently uh, get back to a position where the body can work. You know, imagine walking into a mechanic with a car and they don't return your wheels at the right, you know, um, angle and you continue to have the same problem over and over again, you're really not addressing the root cause of what is aging us. And I guess um, we discovered that exercises themselves were actually pulling the body out and we reinvented it with a leveraging system that can pull the body back in position within a handful of days. Um, it's not perfect, but it just heads you in the right direction. And we worked on a, a lot of amazing athletes with amazing results. I guess my question for the panel is, have you guys seen any correlation between posture and the design of the body and what the impact that it has at the cellular level. Um, because I do believe that once you do return the body to a certain position that um, the body can now heal itself um, and more importantly, actually um, head in the right direction. And I'm curious the impact of that as far as lifespan and whatnot. Anyone, um, John or David? We, no, we, we haven't looked at that. It seems that this is not uh, a well-investigated area. 
Uh, the only thing I would say is that there have been studies on regeneration as induced by very, very weak electromagnetic fields. So as, as you apply stress to cells, they respond to the stress. So it's conceivable that, uh, that posture and other mechanical factors might influence cellular health at some level. But uh, I would have to say this is not an area that anyone has really looked into from a standpoint of fundamental biology of aging. You know, I pre oh, go ahead, David. I'm sorry. Um, I, I would say that uh, we, when we're when we're young, when we're children, we like to climb trees and get into jungle gyms and hang upside down and uh, swing from ropes. And that as we get older, we uh, tend to do that less and less because it hurts more. Um, what I would say is that it is not likely to reverse aging and that reversing aging is, is our goal. And that if you um, take care of the fiddly bits, the tiny things, and they scale up, you're likely to do better. But also I agree that there is a very strong element of um, having your body in alignment, uh, but uh, there's not a lot of money in that. so. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate that the capitalist system looks for places that it can make money and just doing things right and better doesn't seem to attract a lot of attention. Um, I think that uh, shoes are one of the worst things that ever happened to humans once you can clean up all of the, uh, you know, the roads and stuff because they malform feet. You basically put your feet inside a foot coffin and deprive your foot with all of those wonderful muscles and arches and nerves. You deprive it of any kind of feeling. <laughs> it's got to be there for a reason. But as far as a program, a, a, a well-thought-out program to head that way, well, um, I applaud that you're working on it, and uh, I wish you success. David, I appreciate the feedback, and it's so sad that from a capitalistic standpoint, uh, gets in the way of us um, trying to figure out what is best for the human body for us to live productive lives. I think what's good with longevity if you can't uh, move around or you have to get a hip replacement or it's funny, I'm sure people on this panel can recognize plenty of people in their lives that do get back surgeries. Um, you look at Tiger Woods, you know, five back surgeries and still has back issues. And so if you prolong, you know, someone's life and they still are unable to enjoy it or move around, um, what's the purpose? And uh, what's sad is that I, I do agree with you. There is a challenge in making money. There is a challenge in actually recruiting, you know, people that care about actually changing the world from a sense of, from exercise. And uh, we've we've given back a lot of major athletes their careers um, within you know a week, two weeks worth of training. And so we know how powerful it is. The challenge is how do you find uh, the investors that um, for the long haul do want to do good um, for, for the human race and figure out what is best. But I think working side by side with scientists like yourselves was super important because we do believe that there must be some correlation between um, posture and the alignment with gravity and the impact it has at the cellular level. Um, because I do believe that as, as your body, you know, everything we do is in front of us um, and it actually pulls our bodies forward um, with all of not only our day-to-day -day life and sedentary aspects, but also what we do from a training perspective. And if we don't learn to do the opposite, we're, we're basically heading in the wrong direction very, very quickly. And uh, so we are looking for people that are looking to try 
trying to change lives. And uh, it is a challenge um, because I think people want it for themselves, uh, but not necessarily the betterment of people around them. And, uh, you know, that's definitely a big challenge I'm sure that you guys are faced with as well. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sean. And um, indeed, you should connect with uh, the, some of the panelists here directly to see how you can get to the bottom of that, because um, longevity is a holistic as I mean, there has to be a holistic aspect to it. But uh, we are at the top of the hour, uh, way past the top of the hour. And just before we close the room and um, thank our panelists, I'd love to hear from each one of them and let the audience that is still here, let them know how they can support the research or the work you're doing um, in the immediate or in the long term. If each one of you could go, David, Jean, Greg, and Alexandra, so that anyone who's curious about longevity can um, find out more and um, have access to some of the work you're doing. David, please go ahead. Um, they can go to mfoundation.org or the email would be info at mfoundation.org. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, David. John, please go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Sure, yeah, if you want to learn more about what we do, you can go to eberlab.einsteinmedneuroscience.org. It's kind of a long web page name, but that's what it is. Uh, you can just Google it, too. It'll come up fairly easily. Um, but, you know, our work is to be taken in a much broader context. We work specifically on one part of the brain right now. We'd like to expand that to other parts of the brain. Uh, but it's in the context of, you know, tissue replacement for the whole body um, as a way of, of, you know, really defeating aging. And your book also, if you want to mention it, because it was recently published and I highly recommend it. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I have a book, Replacing Aging. Yeah, thanks, Laura. And thanks for the, uh, the, uh, the, the organizers for having me. Much appreciated. Our pleasure. Thanks for being here. I'm Greg. Please go. I know. I, I believe you have a clinical trial coming up. So, if you want to mention that or any um, anything else, sure. So, uh, I'm with Intervene Immune, as in intervening in the immune system uh, aging process, uh, and. You can find us on www.intervenimmune.com. Uh, we are uh, currently launching the TrimX trial. We have some people actually in the trial out to six months, uh, but other people uh, have yet to be enrolled. So it's still open enrollment. Uh, so you can read about it on our website or uh, check us out on the internet. Uh, my uh, email address is Faye. The way you can help us, I think, is to consider uh, signing up uh, for one of our trials or referring uh, friends to uh, potentially consider signing up for one of our trials. We're still uh, looking for some investments as well. Uh, we've been doing better in that regard lately, uh, so we don't have huge goals right now, but there's still our remark about capitalism that was raised by David Goebel uh, a moment ago. And I think you have to remember that capitalism is a process by which resources are directed toward where they're the need.
needed the most, there'd be a lot of funding for it. On the other hand, if it's going to be a, a major impact, you can always make a case. And if you can make the case well enough, someone will fund it. So this on immune system aging and how that ultimately ends up uh, with epigenetic uh, aging modification. But there are many other options for everybody here. Uh, we have our own opportunities. Help for everybody here. Uh, we have our own focus, and we'd certainly welcome uh, anyone to participate in our trial, especially within the United States. Thank you, Greg. And um, you were coming in and out a bit, but we are going, we have recorded this conversation and we'll add all this information on the show notes to make sure everybody has access to it. And last but not least, Alexandra, please go ahead. Yeah, if, you, if you're looking for information or you want to get involved or you want to donate, please come to our uh, uh, website, Research uh, Sense Research Foundation. Um, and as a final word, please speak to all your friends, everyone you meet about this, because I'm always surprised when I talk to my friends that they still don't believe it's real and it's already here. Thank you for saying this, Alexandra. And I, this is one of the things that I know Nathan, Avi, and myself, Avi and myself are really, uh, I, this is the reason why we're doing this, to try to get more people involved and uh, meet the scientists, learn the science, and get excited about this uh, future with longevity. Uh, with that said, I want to say thank you to the panelists, to everybody that was here, and I'm going to let my co-hosts also say their goodbyes. Um, thank you for this time with us, and I hope that we can continue to have this conversation. Thank you very much. It was a fun meeting. Avi and Nathan, do you want to say something? Thanks, Greg. No, I just want to thank all the speakers uh, who are still here. Uh, you win. Uh, you guys are awesome. Uh, I mean, our rest of the speakers are awesome as well. They had to they had to leave because of phone connections and other meetings and things like that. David, Alexandra, Sean, um, Greg, just absolutely fantastic. Great answers, uh, really thought-provoking uh, panel. Just uh, really good to be with you guys here. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Yeah, thank you to all the the panelists, and uh, obviously, big shout out to Laura and Avi for for doing most of the legwork here, setting up this call. So um, yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. A lovely afternoon and hope to hear you soon here or somewhere else. We're going to close the room in a couple of seconds. <laughs>